scripture reading this morning is taken from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. bow with me oh glorious father we come to your throne of grace and mercy this morning thanking you for life our health our families thanking you for all the good that you do for us father we know that we're sinners and we often do and say things that you're not pleased with please forgive us so that we might walk again with you in perfect harmony. Father, it's a beautiful morning. It's cool. and It reminds us of the seasons that we're in in Tennessee. But it also reminds us of your glory. The glory of the snow. Pure and white. Just as you try to get to us to live in your kingdom. We thank you for the kingdom, the family of God. This family that is here today is here to worship. We praise you, O God, for all that you do. All that you do for us each and every day of our lives. There's so many things to be thankful for. But most of all, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. A man who came to earth, lived a perfect life, and gave his life for us. A man who walked this earth as we do, but had no sin. We thank you for him and the things that he's taught us. Continue to let us work on our own faith as we study your word and as we live. Give us a walk that will be good an example for others to watch. We ask you, Father, to be with those that are traveling. There are people who are traveling out of our group here today that in difficult places as well. Watch over them and give them a, a safe trip back home. We thank you for our families, our children, grandchildren. We thank you for our young people here. We thank you for our ministry servants. We'll be hearing, hearing from Jesse today, and we pray that he'll say things that will encourage us to live and walk in your discipleship. Father, this country is in, sometimes we look at things and we look at all the negatives. But Father, we know there are good people in this world. We know that there are a lot of them in this church building this this morning. And we ask you, Father, to give us a good heart and a wisdom to do and say things that are good and wholesome in your sight. We pray for Ukraine. Our heart breaks when we see the children 
for being used by people. Father, we pray that our government and the governments of the world will lay down the arms and have peace in Ukraine and other parts of the world where people are being used and uh, used. We thank you for our country. Father, we live in the greatest country that's never been formed. And I think, in my mind, that it's all because of you. You brought us here many years ago. We're all foreigners in this land, but we know that we're on our way to heaven if we all only follow you and live our lives in such a way that our, the grace that you provide for us will cover all our sins. Thank you for the blessings of life, our homes, our families, our income. And Father, as we think about all these things, we ask you, Father, to continue to walk with us. Our walk is uneven at times, but Father, we know that you will straighten our paths. Give us wisdom to know what to do in our life. All the things that we do and say, we ask you to glorify you and glorify your Son. And it's in his name that I pray these prayers. In Christ's name, amen. Number 613, take my life and let it be. Number 613, 613. We're going to sing all six verses. Take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to Thee, take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee take my voice and let me sing always only for my king Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my in. Select and use every hour as thou shalt choose. Take my will and 
make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. So if you're using your book today and want to mark the invitation song, it will be number 432. My stubborn will at last has yielded. Number 432. Now before Jesse comes to speak to us, Let's sing all three verses of number 150. Follow me, number 150. Will you stand, please, as we sing? I travel down a lonely road and no one seemed to care. The burdens on my weary back have bowed me to despair. I oft complained to Jesus how folks were treating me. And then I heard him say so tenderly. My feet were so weary upon the Calvary's road. The cross became so heavy, I fell beneath the load. Be faithful, weary pilgrim, the morning I can see. Just lift your cross and follow close to me. I work so hard for Jesus, I often boast and say, I've sacrificed a lot of things to walk the narrow way. I gave up fame and fortune, I'm worth a lot to thee. And then I hear him gently say to me, I left the throne of glory and counted it but loss. My hands were nailed in anger upon a cruel cross. But now we'll make the journey with your hand safe in mine. So lift your cross and follow close to me. Oh, Jesus, if I die upon a foreign field someday, t'would be no more than love demands, no less could I repay. No greater love hath mortal man than for a friend to die. 
These are the words he gently spoke to me. If just a cup of water I place within your hand, then just a cup of water is all that I demand. But if by death to living they can thy glory see, I'll take my cross and follow close to thee. Be seated, please. Good morning. It's so good to be here with you this morning. It is a pleasure to be here worshiping with you guys. Uh, if you are visiting with us, we want you to know that uh, we are so thankful that you are here. Uh, we would love for you to stick around after and give us the chance to get to know you a little more. Uh, and we are just so, so thankful uh, that you are here with us enjoying such a beautiful day that God has given us. It is cold, but man, it is great to be in the warmth of good Christian fellowship. Have you ever been in a moment uh, where you were like, this is a one-of-a-kind moment? You know what I'm talking about? Like, like when you know there's just something in the air, there is something special that is about to happen. I'm talking about goosebump moments. Have you ever experienced one of those? I, I'm, a, I'm a huge golf fan like huge. Uh, and when I got into golf, I was about in the eighth grade. So I was about around 12, 13. Uh, and I was just young enough to grow up to experience like the tail end of the Tiger Woods era. I, I never really got to watch Tiger when he was like super dominant, you know, like where if he was in the field, he was winning every weekend. I wasn't old enough to experience that. No, I only heard of the legend that was Tiger Woods. Not kidding, growing up, I played golf in high school, and I would sit and I would watch these highlight reels on YouTube of Tiger's victories back in the day before I would go and play a tournament, and I would think, man, he just looks that, he just makes that look so easy, and then i go out and shoot like 29 over, and I'm like, man, he really makes that look easy. Uh, so when I was a freshman in college, right, Tiger kind of took a break from golf, and Tiger announced uh, he's coming back to play professional golf again. He's coming back on the tour. I, I was ecstatic, right? And, and to be honest with you, Tiger wasn't really a spring chicken anymore when he comes, up, when he comes back to the tour. He, he was kind of quiet when he first started out. He's not doing anything to write home about, right? 2019 rolls around. It's one of the biggest tournaments of the year. If there's any golf fans in here, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the Masters. I watched the whole tournament that whole weekend because Tiger Woods was on the lead card that entire tournament. I remember Sunday rushing back to my dorm room from church, and I watched Tiger in the final round of probably his last major win ever, and he pulls out that victory, and I'm, I'm getting kind of goosebumps thinking about it right now. Y'all, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, in that moment, I'm not proud of it, but I cried in that moment. Uh, keep in mind, I'm a 20-year-old man in a dorm room in college, uh, and I'm crying over a man I've never met hitting a ball into a hole, right? Guys are walking in my dorm room like, what is wrong? I'm like, I, I can't explain it. Uh, every time I look at that or I think about that moment, it was special, right? Because I had grown up idolizing Tiger Woods golf game. That's about the only thing I can idolize out of Tiger Woods life. Uh, but I, I grew up watching this man play a game that I love so much. 
There was a moment, there are tons of moments like this in sports, in movies, in plays, in music. But this morning, I want to tell you about a moment that supersedes the moment I just told you about. And as I've studied it more and more, it's had a bigger impact on me in my life more than any moment that I've ever experienced. And it's a moment we find in Matthew chapter 28 and the verses that were just read for us. Matthew 28 is one of those moments for me. Because when you think about all that has happened before this, the pain that so, that so many experiences that happened before this moment, right? Jesus has been crucified. It's a painful death. He, he's, he's lived his life. He's taught so many people. And he completes his work. He, he's crucified. He's risen from the dead. He's appeared to the disciples a few different times. He's in his new resurrected body. It's a miraculous, amazing moment to read about in Scripture. And in Matthew 28, Jesus knows that his time on earth is coming to a close. His work here is complete. He has fulfilled what he has set out to do. However, he still knows there is much to be done, and he leaves that in the hands of his disciples. And just before he ascends to go back to to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, just before he ascends, he gathers his disciples and he gives them, he gives these 11 men, people just like you and me, his final words of encouragement and a very powerful and important charge. Will you read with me what we read, what Josh read for us earlier, verses 16 uh, through 20. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When you read this text, this is a text that if you've grown up within the church, uh, you know, at any point in your life, you, you've probably heard this text r- read or preached upon. But when you read this text, what words stand out to you? When you go back through it and you look at, you look at each word, what words really stand out to you? What words bring this text meaning? There are two words that really stand out to me in this passage. The first one is authority. Jesus initiates his final address by establishing that authority has been given to him by God. And this leads me to think two things. What Jesus is about to say to these men is of the utmost importance. You do not start a statement by saying all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me if what you are about to say is not one of the most life-changing and important things these 11 men have ever heard. Jesus establishes that what he's about to say is of the utmost importance. And the second thing this teaches me is this is not a suggestion, but a clear and direct commandment to these men and to us to this day, to his followers. The second word that stands out to me is disciples. In these verses, Jesus, with all of his authority, commands his disciples to go out and make more disciples. He knows that these men will be responsible for sharing the gospel, his life-saving message, for carrying on the work that he himself has begun. And if they were going to succeed in growing this earthly kingdom, if what Jesus has spent his life trying to establish, if it's going to grow, it's going to take these 11 men making more of what they are. They must be committed to making and being disciples. 
In his final moments on earth, Jesus stresses the importance of discipleship. It was incredibly important to Jesus, so much so that it was his last words that he said to the disciples. If you knew you weren't going to see someone ever again, you would probably choose your final words especially carefully. You would only say what is important. Jesus makes it clear that discipleship was important to him, therefore it must be important to us. And as we have been talking about, uh, Jesus in this passage tells us that this is who we are. We are to be his faithful disciples. The question is, what does that discipleship look like? What is the discipleship that Jesus desires and talks about in Matthew 28? What does that discipleship look like? It can be difficult to define exactly what discipleship is and what it isn't. It can be difficult to to define that. So our goal this morning is to look exactly that. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, church, I want to start with this disclaimer this morning. Uh, I'm not going to say that we're going to cover everything there is to know about discipleship and being a disciple of Jesus Christ in the time that we have with this morning. Amen. We would be here for hours. We could talk about this for days upon days on end. That's not my goal my goal, rather, for this morning is to, look, is, to allow, is to look at what Scripture says about what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ and to allow this to help formulate our definition of discipleship and give us a starting point for our discipleship journey. So first, let's, let's talk definitions. What is a disciple? Because there's some of you in this room who, who have maybe have never heard this word. Maybe you have heard it, but, you, but, you've, heard it, but you've never heard it defined. We toss around this word a lot within the church. Uh, and we see it talked about a lot in Scripture. But what does disciple actually mean? The word disciple simply just means a student or a learner. There's nothing really particularly special about that word. It just simply means a student. But what makes it special is that it takes on a deeper meaning within the context of Scripture. The Bible indicates that a disciple was someone who walked in the footsteps of their teacher. A student who never left the master's side. They were always listening, always learning, and working to emulate their master in every way that they could. In the context, in this context... Discipleship can be described as the process of trying to follow in the footsteps of our master teacher, Jesus Christ. Turn over me to Luke 9. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people that he wants to follow him. So he tells them exactly what he expects when it comes to following him. And he doesn't sugarcoat it either. Luke 9, 23 reads, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus says that true discipleship begins as we willingly give up our lives to focus on his. That's what I get from Luke 9.23. True discipleship begins when I give up my will to focus and emphasize on his. This is a serious and challenging calling. But if we are committed to becoming disciples for Christ's kingdom, this is exactly what is expected of us. So how do we get to this point of dedication and this level of devotion to Christ? What kind of discipleship is Jesus looking for? I've got two of what discipleship isn't, 
And then I've got two of what discipleship is, and then the lesson will be yours. Um, this morning, what we've, I think we first need to understand is discipleship is not just informational. It's not just informational. Let me ask you, what qualifies somebody to be an expert? Has anyone ever asked you that question? Uh, in my research of that question, I came across a man named Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, and, and Gladwell, in his book called Outliers, uh, was the first one to really kind of quantify that question, kind of give an answer. It's the standard that we tell people a lot whenever you hear this question asked. Uh, he says it's about 10,000 hours of practice of a skill or discipline to be an expert, right? Is that if you have, if you have 10,000 hours of this practice under your belt, then you can be considered an expert. But that's not really the question that I'm wanting you to answer this morning, the question that I'm asking is, is it, is it the knowledge of something that makes you the expert, or is it being able to use the knowledge you have that makes you an expert? If I were to know where every organ is located in the human body and how they work, does that mean, does that make me a surgeon? I promise you, you do not want me anywhere near your operating table. I'll probably pass out, and that doesn't help either one of us. If I know everything there is to know about buildings and houses, I've lived in them all my life, I've walked in probably millions of buildings at a point in my life at this point, does that mean that, I can, that I'm an architect or a contractor and can build you one that's not going to fall on your head? No. If I, know, if I know everything there is to know about Jesus Christ, have never missed a service of any time the doors have been open, does that necessarily mean that I'm a disciple of him? The answer should be yes, but sadly, it's not. Discipleship and knowledge of the scripture are not one and the same. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong there. It's part of it. Don't get me wrong. Discipleship and knowledge, they have to go hand in hand, but they're not one and the same. It can't be everything. It's easy to think that studying and trying to gain as much knowledge of the gospel as possible is devoting yourself to Christ, but true discipleship involves so much more than this. It involves how you use your knowledge about him as well. And there's no better illustration of this than the story we find in Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26, uh, this is a really interesting passage, just a few chapters before the passage we just read. This is before Jesus' crucifixion. His disciples uh, and Jesus are in the upper room. They're sharing a time together before the pinnacle moment in Jesus' work. And in Matthew 26, we see all the disciples surrounding him. And I want to focus on one in particular. Judas was one of the original 12 disciples. He was with Jesus from the very beginning. You can make the argument that no one knew more about Christ than Judas. There was no one in the world that knew more about the man Jesus than the, than the 12 men sitting in that room with him. And Judas was one of them. But in the end... Judas was the apostle that chose to betray the Son of God. It's easy to look at this story and ask, what happened? If this man knew Jesus so well, why did he choose to betray Jesus in the end? And I think it boils down to this. Judas knew a lot about Jesus. But the other disciples, they knew Jesus. In Matthew 26, Jesus tells his disciples that one of them is going to betray them. And in verse 22, all but one of the disciples asks the same question. And notice the language here. They ask the same question, is it I, Lord? All of the disciples, except for one, recognize Jesus 
as Lord. God over their life. The one they would follow to their death. Judas, Judas asked a different question in 26. Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? When you look at those words in, in, in the Greek, they, they're two totally different words. And I think that might have been intentional. You see, Judas spends the same time around Jesus as the other disciples did. He had the same knowledge, but to Judas, Jesus was just a good teacher. But he was not the Lord of his life. You see, Jesus, you see Judas, Judas knew a lot about Jesus. But you could argue he didn't know Jesus who he was, the power that he had, the Lord in the flesh. He had the knowledge, but he didn't use it like the other disciples did. Discipleship is not just informational. Rather, it's relational. We must use our knowledge of Christ to form a personal relationship with Jesus. As we mentioned earlier, Luke 9.23 says that true discipleship begins as we willingly give up our lives to focus on Jesus. The fact of the matter is, church, that Jesus is asking us to give up something we are always going to be selfish with. We are always going to have a hard time giving up, and that's ourselves. That takes a serious amount of dedication. So much so that it is nearly unachievable if you do not truly experience the personage and the holiness of Jesus through his word. If we do not have a relationship that is built with the Savior, that is built upon trust in who he is as Lord and our God, we will not reach that level of discipleship. So what can be done to build a stronger personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I've got two things that I think can help us with that. The first thing is we must be devoted to the study and the application of God's word. Now, you may be saying, well, hang on a minute. Didn't you just say, trust me, I, I know what I just said. Uh, I want to, but I, I know what I just said, but I want you to hear me out. As we've discussed before, discipleship is not just about the information. It's using the information you have. But I would also like to make argument, you can't use that information if you don't have it. Right? 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is, is breathed out by God. God breathed is what that literal translation is. It's, one, it's a word we only see one time in scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. God's word is the most powerful tool you will ever possess. It provides us everything we need to establish a relationship with the Father and his Son. There is only one catch. We have to seek it out. We have to seek and study the scriptures to understand them. How can we ever expect to trust someone that we don't even know, right? Uh, How can you ever expect to trust the God that has called you to give your life to him if you do not know the love that he has for you, if you don't see the promises that he has made you, if you don't appreciate the grace that he offers you, how can you ever trust someone you don't even know? We must learn who God is and experience Jesus through his word before we can learn to trust our lives to him. The second thing, we must surround ourselves with those who help us strengthen our relationship with Jesus Christ. Discipleship is having a personal relationship with Jesus, but it is just as much having a relationship with others who have a personal relationship with Jesus. 
I want to say that again. Discipleship is having a personal relationship with Jesus, but it is just as much having a relationship with other people who have a personal relationship with Jesus. We need people to help us on this discipleship journey. I need you to help me with my discipleship journey. I need everyone in this room, and everyone in this room needs everyone else in this room to help us walk on this discipleship journey. And I don't think there's a greater example of this principle than the story of John Mark. When we first meet John Mark in Acts 13, 13, Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, and they bring along this young man called John Mark. And in Acts 13, 13, we read that John Mark leaves them in the middle of this journey. They're halfway through, and now their party has been cut down, and a lot of the responsibility that John Mark carried now has to be split between Paul and Barnabas. The only reason that John Mark's story does not end in Acts 13, 13 is because of a man named Barnabas. Turn over with me to Acts 15. In Acts 15, Barnabas decides against Paul's better judgment to give this young man a second chance, to take him on another mission. Barnabas, through this process, as they travel Asia Minor, becomes a mentor to Mark, helping him grow through this second missionary journey and connecting him with other Christians like Peter. And Mark does grow. If you want to, you can look over at 1 Peter 5.13 and you will see that Mark and Peter have a very strong relationship. We can even believe that Mark was to Peter as Timothy was to Paul. They were that close. And because of Barnabas' Barnabas's relationship with Mark, Mark eventually became Peter's right-hand man in his ministry. And later, John Mark goes on to write one of the four gospel accounts. Many scholars believe he was the first one to write. Imagine what might have happened to John Mark if he had not had an encourager like Barnabas. Would he have grown as much spiritually? Would he have had as great an impact on the kingdom? Do you have people in your life that push you and sh- to strengthen your relationship with Christ and the kingdom as a whole? If not, those relationships need to be sought out. And those are the relationships we're seeking to form here at JA. The second thing that discipleship is not, discipleship is not just behavior modification. Just like with knowledge, it's easy to think that doing as much good as possible will grow your relationship with Christ. That if I can just be a good enough person, that if I can stop doing X, Y, or Z, then I'll be fine. It's kind of that idea of this checklist faith, right? But true discipleship involves so much more than this. It involves your mindset and how you approach these good works as well. Jesus makes that very clear in Matthew chapter 6. Turn over to Matthew chapter 6. I've got a lot of scripture this morning. I'm sorry if you want to write these down and go back and look at them later, you can. Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew 6, Jesus has a bone to pick with those who are in attendance. You see, these people were doing all the right things. They were giving to the poor, praying, fasting. They had the behavior down pat. But these people, but Jesus knew that all this good was being done for all the wrong reasons. These people craved the attention and the praise of others. They were not seeking the the glory of God. Jesus gives them this warning in Matthew 6, 1, saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
For then you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Jesus tells them that discipleship and following him is more than a laundry list of do's and don'ts. It involves more than just good works. It's about making sure that you are doing the right things for the right reasons, doing spiritual things for spiritual reasons always. What Jesus is seeking is a transformational relationship with him. In his book, Transformational Discipleship, Geiger writes the following, and I wish I had this on the slide, but I don't. Um, But this is an incredible definition, one of the best definitions I've ever heard of this. Discipleship is the intentional and ongoing transformational process that occurs because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. Because of that relationship, my heart is transformed and my behavior follows. I find myself more continuously and easily acting, speaking, thinking like Jesus. It involves actively changing my behavior, my thinking, everything that I can, not for the recognition of myself, but for the recognition of Jesus. Ultimately, discipleship is all about transformation into Christ's likeness. Turn over with me to Colossians 3. Colossians 3 We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Paul describes this transformation in this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, who seek the things, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Here, Paul says we should not only love Christ so much that we should not only love Christ so much that we not only seek to love him, not only should we seek a relationship with him, but that we should seek to become everything that he is. We work to emulate how he talked, how he thought, how he walked, how he interacted with people, and more. Paul indicates that if you are serious about following Jesus, if you're serious about following Jesus, then Jesus isn't just a part of your life. He is your life. If you want to be a true disciple, then everything you do should be focused on the Savior. So it's not just about eliminating things from your life that are not like him. It's also magnifying the things that are like him. After all, what good is your relationship with Christ if you are not willing to let it transform you into something greater? True discipleship should be transformational. So how do we wrap this up? If I could, if I could have you take away one thing from this lesson, I know I just threw a lot at you. But if I could have you take away one thing from this lesson, it would be this. The Apostle Paul is arguably one of the greatest disciples of our Lord who has ever lived. And he wrote this to his fellow Christians in Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, uh, my brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. This is the closest to an explicit definition of discipleship in Scripture that can be found. Discipleship is not just knowledge. 
It's not just behavior modification. It's not just going to church or being active in the youth group. Discipleship is not a singular action. Rather, it is a lifelong journey. It involves combining all of these life changes in order to have a fuller and richer picture of a life that is rooted in Christ. Ultimately, discipleship is a sacrifice of self to be transformed to the image of Christ Jesus daily. This is the type of relationship Jesus is wanting from his followers. And this is the type of followers we at Jefferson Avenue are striving every day to be. We at Jefferson Avenue, we are followers of Jesus. People who are dedicated to transforming every aspect of their life to be more like our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't do it perfectly or even consistently sometimes. The man you are looking at in front of you does not do this perfectly or even consistently sometimes. But we here at this congregation are striving to do it faithfully. When I was in the seventh grade, I remember I got a card from from my current youth minister here. And on the top of that card, there was a quote that I I still have never forgotten to this day. The quote read, Jesus Christ died for me. The least, the very least that I could do is live for him. Church, God loved you so much that he became flesh. He came to earth, lived a perfect life, suffered a cruel, painful death resurrected on the third day so that me and you would have forgiveness of our sins that created distance between us and him. And this morning, this morning, God invites you into that. He invites you into that life. He invites you to follow him into that. At this, and this morning, by the name, by that name, the name of Jesus Christ, his unconditional love for you, we invite you to join us, who are all imperfect people to follow our perfect Savior towards heaven. We at Jefferson Avenue are seeking to be people who are transforming our lives into Christ's likeness every day. And we are seeking to do that for others. If you have any needs this morning, if there's anything we can pray for you about, if there's anything we can help you along in this discipleship journey, if you're looking to start this journey, we would love nothing more than to wrap, your arms, wrap our arms around you and walk with you. If you have anything, won't you come as we stand and as we sing?